This is Doug Kent Crispin, and welcome to the Kick-Ass Oregon History Book Club. This is my book club, so I get to choose the books that we read. It's all Oregon history, usually by Oregon authors. So buy a book, read a book, and let's talk about it while we support our local historians. Because reading is sexy and kick-ass. This is uh, resident historian Doug Kane Crispin, and I'm sitting down with J.B. Fisher uh, to talk to him about his new book, Echo of Distant Water, which is produced by, uh, published by Trine Day here in Oregon, Oregon Publications. So thanks so much, J.B., for sitting down and chatting with us today. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. You bet. You've been busy with some readings, of course, and I uh, got a chance to uh, see your reading uh, a week and a half ago at Annie Bloom's, and that, that was a, a great turnout, great reading. I know that you've got some more coming up, so we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast, but it seems like people are really enjoying the book. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, there's been some really good response so far. Why don't you give us kind of the elevator speech, you know, 30,000 foot view. Uh, What is this book about? Yeah, so it's about really two different stories. One is the story that happened on December 7th, 1958. Family of five, uh, father, mother, three young daughters, head out to Columbia River Gorge to collect Christmas greens, uh, never seen again. A couple of uh, sightings in Hood River and Cascade Locks. Then they're disappear- they've disappeared, huge search. Um, two of the bodies turn up in the following spring, other three still missing, the car's still missing. So that's one side. The other one is the story of people who've tried to figure it out. And that's kind of a separate one. So it's a treasure tale in a lot of ways without like a big pot of gold at the bottom. Exactly. Yeah, really, the, the big treasure is this car, this uh, 1954 Ford station wagon that's believed to be sitting at the bottom of the uh, Columbia River. And the Columbia River plays a huge role in this book in the gorge, which I absolutely, it's a spot of Oregon that I love going to. I, I love checking it out. So that was great to, that you really got to kind of fold that into mm-hmm. the tale as well, that setting. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition because you have, you know, this beautiful, like, you know, cherished treasure of, of scenery and, you know, really on a national or international level, just in a spectacular place. And then you have this dark noir kind of story, mid 19th century, or 20th century, you know, unfolding in this really dark way in this beautiful place. Yeah, and that's, you know, the, the cool, one of the cool things, the cool things about this family getting murdered book um, is that you can actually go out to these locations, really kind of a short drive from Portland, so many of them, and check them out. I know you and I were out in the Dalles a couple years ago, and we are just kind of standing, you know, at the edge of the river, just kind of talking about this case. Mm-hmm. And you've got a fantastic map. I want to compliment you on the map oh, in here and the photos as thanks. well throughout the book. Really, really well chosen, really well done. We'll talk about that Thank in a you. little bit. But, you know, I I think in the book and in the example uh, that you read at Annie Bloom and then you and then you kind of spoke a little bit more during that during that reading, you really do a good job at kind of painting a picture of 1950s Portland, which, of course, is way different than Portland now, way different than old Portland. Maybe it's like old, old, old (laughs) Portland, right? It is kind of what it is. So talk to us a little bit about 1950s Portland, because, again, I I think you really hit the nail on the head in this book. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so definitely a different world in a lot of ways, population-wise, about 250,000 fewer people. So a lot less crowded, um, a lot less traffic, and there are a few hot spots like Harbor Boulevard over by where Tom McCall Waterfront Park is today, um, but generally a much quieter place, in a sense a small town. Um, bridges, there's still some bridges, but not as many, no Telecom Crossing, no Fremont, no uh, Markham, no I-5, that's kind of a big one. Uh, there were um, obviously rivers, but the rivers were really polluted, full of log jams, uh, Coffee was not very good at that point. It was uh, pretty hard to get a good cup unless you're going over to Cafe Espresso over on Southwest 6th or one of the few places that had what they called at the time an imported Italian mixing machine. And then crime is kind of an interesting one because a lot of times people assume, oh, it's just the 50s, right? Leave it to Beaver, really innocent, quiet time everywhere. But um, Portland had a lot of crime and, and it was definitely in the spotlight. In the late 50s, there was a big vice probe um, that was sniffing out gambling, slot machines, pinball, it's a big deal. Um, but it was really not paying attention to some of the bigger 
problems out there, prostitution, narcotics trafficking, which already was a big thing, even heroin at the time, which might surprise people, and uh, police corruption. And so those kinds of things are definitely um, happening, going on at the time. And I think there's an expectation that, that that wasn't the case. And also that times were a lot different in the sense of how stories got covered, that you know when a story came out, people would sort of just get down to it and it would get figured out and that would be it, that there wouldn't be any of the sort of fake newsy kind of stuff that we see today. But the reality is things haven't changed that much in that regard. Now, of course, some of the, the book, as we talked about, takes place in the, in the Columbia River Gorge and the Dalles features a bit on it, too. Mm-hmm. Have you been to the Dalles lately? Yeah. And the Dalles is, speaking of how things change, I'd say that the Dalles is a cool place in some ways because it hasn't changed as much. But know? they got a fucking because... Petit Provence there, no, that's right? True, that's like, true. I, I tweeted about that. I was like, look <laughs> yeah. out. This would happen in yeah, Northeast yeah, that, Alberta. That's like, true. You know. Yeah. There definitely have been some big changes. But you go to places like Zim's, which you and I have been to, and some of the signage around and hotels and things. You kind of, if you're not, you know, if you're kind of passing through, you can kind of feel like it's, it's less, um, less change, but yeah, it's definitely still has some, uh, some, some of the kind of, uh, you know, Northwest beer, craft beer and all the rest has definitely taken, a, taken a hold, but, um, but it is an interesting place too, because it, it does, like you said earlier with this cliff site that we were out at, out at, you know, these are the, the locations that really haven't changed much. And, and, and this is where the car was believed to go over the cliff to, Detective Graven, who I'm sure we'll talk about more in a little bit here, had found these these um, tire tracks that matched the vehicle. And so you can go to places like that or over in Hood River. There's a um, small um, cafe that's still there. The building's still there. It was a, a different name at the time, Paradise Snack Bar. And it was the last place they were seen before they disappeared. And so there's like a real, there's a real aura still in the gorge. And definitely the Dallas has kind of a a feeling of that too. So what was the Dalles like in the 50s? Because this was a notorious location that Portland people would go to. Yeah, this is, I mean, this was the Wild West. In some ways, it's not entirely not the Wild West now, but it was really the Wild West back then. I mean, one of the things about it was that there's across the river, it's a community called Dallasport. And it's sort of a little bit of a a weird place because it's kind of part of Oregon more than Washington jurisdiction-wise. So it's sort of a, a free-for-all space, or at least it was then. And so there were there were brothels over there. There were abortionists operating kind of illicitly. And, and basically they were, well, I shouldn't say so much illicitly because they were basically given a pass. And that kind of factors into this story that right across the river, literally from that cliff site, was a brothel that turns out to have connection to the story. Um, he's the person who ran it, had been connected to that big vice probe that I was talking about earlier. And that person is, of course, Clifford Slim Bennett, yeah, right? Yeah, Clifford which, Slim Bennett. Which we talked about in our in our Kenton yeah, podcast exactly. at, the, at the 8212 Club, right? Exactly, so, I mean, Clifford's kind of kind of moving throughout 1950s Vice, Oregon, and, he was and a big Washington. Fish. Yeah, and Montana. He was also in Great Falls, Montana. He was basically a, a major operator in terms of both prostitution and narcotics trafficking. Um, and, you know, most people, most listeners, if they know a name from all that in the 50s, they think of Portland Confidential and um, Big Jim Elkins. And, of course, Elkins was a, a major figure. He got lots of attention. But the reality was that he wasn't, it, it wasn't so simple that he was really running the whole show. He was kind of the front guy, colorful, vibrant character. And Cliff Bennett was, too. Clifford Slim Bennett was also a colorful character. But he was... Much more in, um, out of the limelight, at least until he went to Washington when all these uh, characters were dragged out there for this big Senate um, hearing in 1957 in front of Bobby Kennedy. Goddamn the Kennedys. Yeah, yeah. And so and Clifford Bennett became kind of a, a big figure there because he took the fifth in front of, and, in, and in the face of Bobby Kennedy's basically um, prodding him and kind of making fun of him. Um, he just kind of kept silent and protected Jim Elkins. And basically, as a result of all that, he was given a pass. And so he was running this brothel out in, in um, Dallasport across from the Dallas. And so the Dallas, too, was kind of a um, wide open place at that time. There was, um, you know, the, at that point, there was, there was shipping coming in and there were, you know, there was a famous um, union kind of flare up at, at that time. I call it, was it the Pineapple Strike? I can't remember the, the name, but it's, but there, there'd been some, there was some colorful history on that side. There was also, um, you know, with the newspaper strike in Portland in, in 1959, there's still a mural on the side of a building there that says, don't buy Portland papers. And so there's definitely, you know, they, were, they weren't completely disconnected from the politics of <laughs> the big city, even though they were way out there. Um, 
Now, now coming back again to, to the Martins, now we've kind of laid that, that setting out. Uh, this is a case that really captivated Oregonians for years. It was kind of the, the Chiron of the day, yeah. right, in terms of, of missing uh, persons cases. And why do, you think, why do you think that was the case? And, I mean, part of it was, you know, I'm coming to the, the wholesomeness of going out for Christmas greens, totally, you know, like, yeah. like yeah. The, the holiday season. Part of that is what I'm coming back to. But um, why do you think this case captivated Oregonians so much? Well, that was a big part of it. You know, this was December 7th, so it was right there in the Christmas season. The, the family was from northeast Portland, and they were living on a street that had become known as Candy Lane because the father, Ken Martin, would dress up as Santa Claus, not just for the family, but for the whole neighborhood. And he made these, um, pie, these plywood candy canes that he gave out to everyone on the street. So there was a real, there was definitely that whole wholesome um, thing going on there. Um, and I think that was a big part of it. But there was also just so much question in this case. You know, there was no real sense of a beginning, middle and end of, you know, where they disappeared from, what happened to them, why. All those were completely open ended questions. And so I think there was it really caught the imagination of of Portlanders because there were just so many um, ways to wonder about this case. So again, kind of going off this whole theme of the wholesomeness, um, in your book on page 80, you have a photo of the house, the Martin house from 2014, and you have one of these candy canes set out on the porch that you had set out there for the photo. And I don't know, it, it's kind of fucking creepy, JB. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, basically, uh, in the course of researching this case, I made a lot of connections with different people who were involved, who had been um, descendants of some of the people who had initially looked into it, neighbors, that sort of thing. And so in this case, I got the plywood candy cane from the daughter of Ann Sullivan, the Oregonian journalist who'd worked on this case in the mid-late 60s, tried to bring it back to Portland's attention. And uh, that plywood candy cane just showed up on my doorstep one day, which was also kind of creepy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was this. And then um, I had gotten to know the the family that lives in the Martin house, um, and that, that was a big deal because they were willing they were really interested in the story and they actually found some things hidden in their house that belonged to the family so there and you know i brought my kids over they had three boys in this case not three girls like in the martin case but it's interesting and my kids hung out with them when they were younger and so if i even have a picture actually even more creepy would be the picture of my kid in front of that candy can i decided not to put that one in the book that'd be a little too weird but anyway the um yeah so that so so the whole idea of kind of getting to know not just the story, but really the players involved, the, the spaces. I mean, going into the house was a huge thing for being able to tell the story and also kind of figure out what, what life was like. So, yeah. so all that kind of came to the floor. And then you've also, so on page 79, again, like I really enjoy the photos in the book. Yeah. Page 79, you got a picture of the Martins at Kanita Resort. Yeah, right? and Kanita, which, yeah. which, of course, Kanita isn't uh, available not anymore. anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Memory now, so, I guess call it. so now yeah. you got like like the, the, the double dead memories just yeah. fit for a Facebook post, right? And yeah, then, totally. Yeah. I know. And they were, they were really avid um, travelers in terms of taking advan- advantage of what Oregon had to offer. Um, they go out to the coast and to um, various spots that are really into Mount Hood and the Oregon Trails Club. And so they would just go off on these on these trips. And so I have a couple of pictures of family summer family activities, which interestingly enough also involve water, which is sort of sort of sad in a way to look at that. But but um, yeah, that one is definitely a, a historic shot from the summer before. Now, listeners will remember uh, the name of. Uh Walter Graven from the Portland on the Take podcast, you know, the Correct. book that you wrote with uh, with um, J.D. Chandler. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, he's a he's a detective. But tell us a little bit more about Walter Graven and who was he? And tell us about this archive that essentially that, that you create that you're, you that you curate. Yeah, Walter sure. Graven's. Sure. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So Walter Graven grew up in eastern Oregon, kind of around the Wallawas area. And he uh, became, uh, before he was a detective, he worked in the shipyards over on Swan Island. And then eventually um, became involved in police work and became a Multnomah County criminal detective by the 1940s, after the war, the late 40s, and really was active until the late 60s. And so, and he worked on a number of criminal cases in the Portland on the Take book that we did that was born out of some of the materials that he had on cases from the late 40s and early 50s, including the Joanne Dewey murder and a couple of what we found to be related Portland cases from 
the late 40s. So he had been involved in those. But the Martin case was really like his his biggest enigma. He was, you know, throughout the rest of his life, totally committed to trying to figure out what what the heck happened in that case. Um, so he had let. So basically, this archive um, I got from his daughter Gloria, who um, had who I'd gotten in contact with by way of uh, Walter Graven's grandson, who's a on the Yamhill um, City Police. He's actually the chief now. He was an officer when I first contacted him, and he put me in touch with with Walter's daughter, Gloria. And Gloria had this big suitcase full of all kinds of notebooks and uh, photo scrapbook, you know, newspaper clipping photo scrapbooks, all kinds of stuff. And it wasn't all from the Martin case. In fact, the Martin case is compared to some of the other stuff in there. It's fair, it's a little bit smaller section, but basically all this stuff was a trail that he had left behind. I mean, obviously everyone keeps shit and passes it along, but this really started to have that uh, uh, indication that he, he couldn't figure some of this stuff out and he was kind of leaving it for other people to figure out. I mean, there's even, there's a 1956 sheriff's, um, Multnomah County Sheriff's office yearbook that has all these different cases and things in it. On one page, there's this picture of a guy who has a horse in the elevator at the Multnomah County courthouse and says, you know, that this drunk guy brought this horse in to the drought. And then under that, in his own handwriting, Graven had written, this is the, um, the person who committed the Matson murder. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And I looked up and there's this um, kid who was kidnapped in Tacoma in the 1940s. And so, and that was never revealed. There was never any coverage of that. So I was thinking, you know, that's the reason that thing is sitting in this, in this um, suitcase here. He, you know, had some things that he wanted to still um, have some other people look into potentially. So, so we kind of, it kind of came to, to um, see that stuff as really valuable resource. And he became kind of like a muse for me. I mean, like re- reading through some of his notebooks, especially about the Martin case, starting to write about it. It was like, this is, this is stuff that is there to be, to be told. So I was kind of, and he was also, he was an interesting guy too, because he was also a writer. He wrote poetry. He wrote um, short stories. In one of his notebooks, one of my favorite things is there's this little poem that he wrote for the 1959 centennial celebration. It turned out there was a contest, see who could write the best poem about Mount Hood. I actually tried to trace it. I tried to figure out why was he writing about this little poem about Mount Hood. And that, sure enough, was his entry. It was like between a couple of like police reports about or police notes about breaking and entering and other things. He's like has this little poem about how beautiful Mount Hood was. It's kind of cool. Now, now getting back into this Martin case, when Graven was on it, it's it seems like and maybe not in Graven's realm, but there was a lot of jurisdictions involved in this in this uh, search. Yes, right? and it seems like there was a lot of just just idiotic bungling mm-hmm. going on. I mean, there was there's a case where the uh, the Colt, uh, Colt commander pistol was found nearby, mm-hmm. you know, that had blood on it and was brought into the sheriff and the sheriff's like, yeah, yeah, just go ahead and take that after he examined it and so on. Yeah, so, barely even examined it. Yeah. So there was this bungling back. going on, but also, correct me if I'm wrong here, Graven got told to stand down on this case, correct? Yes, he, he kept did. investigating it and he was told by his superiors, hey, hang on a second. He did, yeah. In fact, you know, there there were at least five different jurisdictions looking into it. So, like you said, a lot of bungling, a lot of ter- turf wars, which is typical, right? But and you know, the fact of the matter is, Graven looking around out at the Dallas wasn't his jurisdiction. But at the same time, he was putting together a whole slew of clues and leads and presenting them to his superiors, leads. yeah, in a very direct way, you know. And basically, he he, he published a, a confidential memo to them as a police report that basically said, "Here's, you know, I'm a." criminal detective this is what i was hired to do take these or leave them but this is what i found um and basically the response to it was at one point it wasn't with that particular report but his superior that um sheriff lambert at multnomah county sheriff's office literally took a police report lit it on fire and put it in a metal trash bin and said you know we both know that you can't you can't be doing this so there was definitely a, a pretty big signal coming from from that end yeah and then you of course aren't the first you may be the first historian that's looking into this, but you're not the first writer, right? No, it's, it's looked no. into this. There's uh, Sullivan is looked in, Ann Sullivan, and we're going to talk about uh, Margie Boulay, of mm-hmm. course. Margie Boulay, uh, yeah. Jeff Giannola is pretty mm-hmm. geeked out on this. Mm-hmm. Um, what What are you bringing that those individuals haven't? Because it it yeah. almost it almost feels like like every decade almost. Yeah. you know these folks the, are looking yeah. into it. So it's true. So mm-hmm. what does Echo of Distant Water bring to the story? this tale that the others don't so a couple of different factors and i don't want to give away too much since it is a mystery story exactly. right so i don't want to I don't feel want to free give to censor me at any point and be like yeah. come on man yeah yeah <laughs> but i'm happy to point but i think it's a great question and so 
So basically, there was a lot of groundwork done, and those people definitely spent a lot of time, and that's a lot of what I was able to work with was the fact that, that all that had been done. So this isn't me just randomly speculating, right? And certainly a lot of that goes back to Graven because he was basically, the, from the start, the person who was really carrying that torch. So yeah, um, Sullivan, Boulay, Gianola, they all contributed important things. But the, the two pieces that I think were most important to what I brought in was one, the Portland Vice probe. And that came a lot from conversations that I had been having with Phil Stanford about especially Clifford Bennett. Because what happened was um, Walter Graven went to see Clifford Bennett over at that brothel to talk about these ex-cons. In Dallasport. In yeah. Dallasport. To talk about these ex-cons who'd been linked to this case in several different compelling ways. And um, that to me was a real question because no one else talked with him he doesn't show up anywhere and so when I learned that he had been this huge fish over in Portland just a couple of years before I started to really think like this needs to be looked into more so I spent a lot of time in the state archive looking at um, the files which the Oregon State Police had been doing and the state um, had been doing involving looking into you know probing Portland Vice and so sure enough Clifford Bennett comes into that in many different ways and so the story basically tells um, a lot in terms of his connections how big of a fish he really was and why that would help in large part to understand why this case wasn't solved uh, in terms of how these various jurisdictions had been involved with this particular individual and others. So that's a bit, that's number one. The other piece of it was more personal in terms of the family. And, and part of that involves stuff that I, I can't, I'm not going to give away at all right now, but it was basically a matter of by way of um, work that coin had done. Um, people had contacted the studio to coin TV that is, um, and we're interested in talking about this case. And I and I followed up on that. And that really was revealing in terms of how the explanation for why this happened could come through. And it's not a conclusion. Um, that's one thing I really want to emphasize is this book isn't drawing definitive conclusions. There are a lot of facts in here, but there are also places where they're extrapolating and dramatization, that sort of thing. I think we'll talk about that more. But But the bottom line is it does provide some really plausible explanations for why this could have happened. And that's something that no one really had been able to offer in the past. So talk to us a little bit about Ann Sullivan and Tom McCall, Governor Tom okay. McCall. Yeah. They, they had a relationship. I mean, a small R yeah. relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. And, and Ann Sullivan's an interesting figure because she really was the first, um, the first woman at the Oregonian to write what might be considered, um, well, she was at the city desk. So serious stories before there had been a lot of um, of um, female journalists at the Oregonian who are part of, on the society pages and the culinary writers and that sort of thing. And, and Ann Sullivan really rose to a position which hadn't been really achieved before. And so she came out of uh, University of Oregon Journalism School and one of her classmates was Tom McCall. And she kind of rose by the 60s to become a real star at the Oregonian. She was writing on all sorts of different topics. But in the mid 50s, she really started to get into covering police corruption, various kinds of criminal cases, all at the city desk. And so she actually wrote some of the initial stories about the Martin investigation. She wrote the story about the discovery of the middle daughter um, and the um, Bonneville Dam spillway. She wrote some other stories back in 1959 as the investigation was happening. But in the mid to late 60s, she started to research again. And it's not entirely clear why she picked up on the story at that time. It seemed like it had something to do with looking into the family's um, financial status. But at any rate, she basically got in touch with Graven and a number of other people who were sort of almost like a squad of people who were had, had Graven had put together to kind of like get the shit done, you know. And so there was someone from the state police. There was a private investigator who had been instrumental in finding those tire tracks and also happened to be the first car wash owner in Portland, which I thought was kind of an interesting detail. This guy, Donald Bain. Anyway, so she got these guys all together. And then in 1967, she put together this big story in the Oregonian Sunday paper called What Really Happened to the Martins. And so this became this expose because until that time, you mentioned the gun. We talked about, you know, there's this abandoned car that was connected to these ex-cons. There were these tire tracks. None of that had really been presented. Up till then, it had all been, they were in an accident. They drove off the, at Cascade Locks into the locks. So this was in 1967. This was like designed as almost like a kind of shock and awe. Like here's all this fucking amazing stuff coming out that's never really been looked at. And so her idea with this, because I had our, all her original notes and letters and things, she was, she was working with Tom McCall and basically using that as an opportunity to really get this out. So she, her plan with this was to publish this, this article, which she did, it's like 14 columns across two big full pages. You know, it's a big story. It has all kinds of stuff in there. And then she was going to get this out there and then pretty much get the Oregon State Police to reopen the investigation. And that did happen. But I'm not going to give away how that went. But Tom McCall was, was, was helpful in that. You know, he definitely um, um, was able to 
prompt that to happen. Now, I'm I, again, I don't want to give away too much mm-hmm. of the reader. We want to keep the mystery here. So just feel free to shut me off. Okay. Like, sure. No, dude, we're down. not talking about that. <laughs> Could McCall have done more? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, one of the things I tried to do in this case, and it, it kind of comes down to actually McCall's predecessor here, Hatfield, because I tried at one point to get into over at Willamette University to have all the Hatfield <laughs> papers. And so yeah. the thing is, is that McCall wasn't governor at the time of the actual investigation, but Hatfield was. And so one of the things I really wanted to do, at least at that in 59, by 59 he was, um, one of the things I really wanted to do was look into his correspondence to see what, if anything, was there. And unfortunately, the, the Hatfield papers at, at Willamette are closed until, I think, 2023 or something like that. Yeah, that was my, my fake laugh there. Yeah, and yeah, I actually like, tried to, to... I had a lawyer friend who he and I were kind of working on it for a little bit, but it was sort of like, you know, no no chance. Yeah. So so there is that big question, and that does get to... there. You know, one of the reasons that I was prompted to do that was I did find some really weird shit, which isn't in the book, about basically how an Oregon City newspaper publisher had checked in to see what the status was, and the response that he got came from the state police, but it came it came by way of uh, McCall basically saying, could you, at the state police, write this letter to answer? And I was sort of like, what's going on here? Why wouldn't McCall answer that letter? Like, obviously, the state police had been involved and they would know more, but it, it was a very surreptitious kind of way of going about it. And I was also sort of wondering, why was this particular person asking? And of course, there could be nothing to it, but when you're doing this kind of work, you always have to assume that something is, something is worth looking into if something like that is going on. And so... So there was there was that question. I mean, I don't know exactly what McCall could have done at that point, because as you'll find out in the book, a lot of that came down the the results came down to sort of dynamics at the state police more than anything. So and there is even the question of, you know, the governor may not necessarily have even known what the, the dynamics were in that at that point. He was for all we know he was thinking, OK, I'm just getting this out there. They reopen the investigation. Then they're Anne's know, Anne's happy. Yeah, yeah. Anne's happy. They're going to present a report and we're, we're going to be done. Yeah, so. Yeah. So for all we know, that that was it. There wasn't necessarily any kind of, um, you know, dark, you know, like covering up. But that's sort of the way that a lot of this stuff works is that not everyone necessarily knows, even at high levels, what some of those uh, intricacies might involve. Now, in the in the first two significant passages in the book, you take some liberties with what I call historical imagination. Right. So you are starting, as you as you detail, with some documents and then you're kind of filling in some conversations there of what might have happened under the bridge, what might have happened in the Martin home right off of Sandy. You know, these these kinds of things. Um, tell me a bit about historical imagination as a tool for a historian, because some folks aren't too hip with it, mm-hmm. as I have found, because I use it as a tool at times, mm-hmm. as I have found in submitting journal articles and the like, you know, some, some sure. folks aren't too into it. But tell me, about, uh, tell me about the historian using historical imagination and doing it well, because I think you did a really good fucking job Thank with you. those two passages, I mean, with the book as a whole, but specifically with historical imagination, those two passages, I think you did a great job. So let's talk a little bit about that. Okay, well, first of all, I should preface it with uh, my background is in literature. I actually have a PhD in Shakespeare and, uh, and uh, early modern English literature. So, so I definitely have that angle kind of coming into it. Um, I think historical imagination is a great term for it. I think that one of the things that can happen in those situations is the expectation that you might say, well, there isn't enough evidence, there aren't enough facts, and you're jumping to conclusions. And one of the things I really want to stress here is I'm not drawing conclusions with this stuff. Rather, I'm extrapolating so that I've taken documents in some cases, in some cases, interviews with actual people. Like, for instance, there's a scene in there in the morning before they, they head off where the youngest daughter, Susie, goes next door and shoots BBs in the basement with the neighbor kids. And how, where did that come from? Well, I talked with that neighbor and learned that, that that's where she was. And so some of them are very much drawn very directly. But some like the, the dialogue, right? Dialogue's a little tricky because obviously I don't know what they said to each other that morning. Um, I have them reading the middle and youngest daughter sitting down and reading books in the first thing in the morning. How do I know that? Well, I don't know that they were sitting down reading books, but I did learn that the Beverly Cleary. Yeah, yeah, one of them was reading Beverly Cleary book, which, you know, had been published and was probably being read by lots of Portland kids at that point. Took place Um, a few blocks from her home. Exactly. Right right down the road. And and in fact, the library that the so I learned that the Martins were huge library patrons. In fact, they were such big library patrons that Ken had his own fucking stamp that he would bring with him to help the librarian check out the books. 
you know, back when you'd have to put the stamp on each book. So they had, a, and I knew that they had a box in front of their, um, by, in their living room by the front door, like an apple crate that they kept all the library books, which I thought was a great fucking idea. My kids, I don't have a box, but Doug can turn and actually see that there's, <laughs> there's a, a stack, stack of library books. books there. So we're kind of following in the tradition. So so those ideas, you know, are, are again, they're not coming from just my imagination. They're coming from historical documentation. But at the same time, I'm, I'll be the first to say these are not conclusions. This is not to say this is 100% how it happens. I mean, I will say one of my big influences there, um, along with Beverly Cleary, who actually was a huge influence for the dialogue because she really writes and, and has her characters talk a lot like how I wanted my characters to talk. And I will call them characters at that point because obviously they're not the real, the real thing. But, um, but I will say also that, um, you know, the, the idea of developing um, out of the imagination you know, it does come with some responsibility. And, and the main influence for me was um, Truman Capote in, in Cold Blood, because when I think about the opening chapters of that book, I really want to use that as like a touchstone to say, I want to go about that far and not really further. So, you know, say like Norman Mailer. Yeah, totally. Further, right. Totally, Executioner's yeah. song or the fucking Lee Harvey Oswald was in the Soviet Union. Yeah, bullshit. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I didn't want to go that far, but I wanted to keep it, you know, phone conversations, Things we knew, like dishes in the sink, um, candy wrappers found in the fireplace. I mean, I don't know why they were burning their candy wrappers, but the whole start of the book has to do with the fact that they'd been at this Christmas party, the, the parents, the night before. And uh, there the were all oranges. These, yeah, orange, yeah, oranges, which come back later in the story, in part as actual very hard material evidence. So I'm not just making this stuff up randomly. There's like a whole thing to build out of it. So so that, so that, that does come with that responsibility, though, because you do want to be true to the, the the facts on the ground and i feel like i still was able to do that you can do both but the difference is you don't want to just draw solid conclusions and say we're done yeah and and again like i said i think you did it very well uh, i i think part of a, a historian's job is to imagine to some degree uh, you know especially if i think if you go you know as you and i tend to look a lot at kind of uh, mid 20th century, you know, and, and kind of more recent history. But, you know, sometimes if you look into some of the, the medieval history, you have a document or two, right? It yeah. is, is it, two if you're fucking lucky. Yeah. Or even know. Shakespeare, where, I mean, there's a whole world of scholarship that's built out of not, I don't want to say idle speculation, but out of major gaps, right? About his own life, about his own work, you know, the fact that we don't have all the documentation. So there, there's a lot of room for that, especially as you go back further um, and even in the mid 20th century you know there's there's definitely um, situations that come up where you know we talk about the term historical narrative in a very comfortable way right we call something a historical narrative most of the time and settle on that as like an objective version right oh yeah that's the narrative for world war ii or that's the narrative for this. but the word narrative i want to come remind us is a word that basically speaks to the historical imagination or to literature right it's a story that's been told and we all know at the end of the day that one historian no matter how reliable how authoritative that person's version of world war ii is not going to be the same as someone else's and ultimately none of them are going to be the same as what really happened like like a like putin's version is yeah exactly the current favorite right yeah right so yeah and i, and I think in the, one other kind of analogy i like to think about is like uh, i like to hike in the forest probably a lot of listeners do i think about the forest trail right you go you go on that path and it's like worn, right? But on either side of you, it's just this wild land, right? I mean, most of us aren't going to just like wander into that. But that's sort of what history has done is given us this like really solid path. And we all feel confident going down it. But the reality is there's a lot of other shit out there, right? And it's not to say that anything goes. But if someone takes a different alternative route, there are, there are ways of doing it. You just have to obviously proceed pretty carefully, right? Thank you for kind of clarifying that, because I, I think it's I think it's a good tool that when it's used well is done well. Yeah. And there's plenty of examples where it's maybe not done. Well, yeah. But I, th I think and you did a great job on it. Thank and, you. and I appreciate that. It, it really it gives these characters life, you know, uh, these dead characters. You yeah, know, well, that's what you know, because that was the experience I had when I first read In Cold Blood. It was like so powerful to read that first couple of the first couple of sections and think like, wow, these are interesting people. And I feel connected to them. And then it's like, oh, shit. I, for, I almost forgot that they're about to die, right? And it's like that, that's like a huge part of that whole cathartic experience of reading this kind of stuff is you, ha you can't not connect with the characters in a lot of ways. And a lot of times we, in our world today, we, we can, but it's, it's oftentimes in these sort of broader strokes, right? Or sort of like, oh, I, I think I know something about it. So, I mean, in a way, this is the space to, to make that happen. 
And then tell me, you know, I'm, I'm just getting off of submitting my manuscript for my book, A Kick-Ass Oregon History, available yeah. in August 2020. Um, so, you know, and, and I recall specific moments as I'm kind of going through it where, oh, yeah, man, when I wrote that, I was on a fucking tear, man. And, it, it, you know, it, it, it feels good to read yeah, those yeah. words that you created. What's What passages in Echo of Distant Water do you look at now and you go, oh, yeah, I was really on a fucking roll then when I was yeah. doing it? Yeah, well, actually, the one that probably comes to mind the most, because there were a lot like that, in part because I was really fortunate to have the whole case file for this. So, I mean, it's like, I would like to say it's about the thickness of a Denver Metro phone book. So not, you know, the biggest case file, but it's pretty, pretty fucking big. And that was like, that was like a muse in itself. It was just like, oh, I'm just amazing stories, especially great. Whenever I got to a Graven police report, it was like, there's so much here. And it's just so amazing. I can't wait to just tell that story. So that was a big piece of it. But the biggest part was that the last main chapter watery moonlight which is the chapter that kind of brings brings kind of a, a hypothetical scenario of what seems to have happened off during that late afternoon and evening and when i wrote that at that point i was sort of like i had these not really loose ends but more like just that the energy of like i want to show how all these various things i found kind of work to make this happen and the weird thing was i decided at first i was like i don't know how i'm going to do this because I don't want to accuse people. I'm not here to draw definitive conclusions. So what did I do? Well, I broke the number one rule as a writing professor of saying to my students all the time, you know, don't use passive voice, use active voice, keep it always in, you know, this person did that, give it attribution where it mattered. And I I realized if I write this more in the passive voice, it's going to give me a lot of power to basically make this happen where I can basically take you through the the kind of scenario of their last hours. and so that really, like when I was writing that, it was just sort of like there's sort of this real energy, you know, that it was just like, wow, and all this six, year, six years of working on this, it sort of like just came to, to that, which was a cool place for it to be because obviously it doesn't always work that way. You know, sometimes with these rabbit holes, you could end up tearing your hair out thinking like, Shit, I don't know how I'm going to get all this to work together. Or I didn't find enough to put, I mean, I, I like you usually use the, the jigsaw puzzle, right? It's like we have these pieces, but we can't put together the whole puzzle. Right. And I'm not saying I put together the whole puzzle, but... It's basically like, imagine you get to a point where you're like, we don't need all the pieces and this can still be an amazing picture, right? And that's kind of what happened with that, that ending. And I, I want to I get back to that in a second here. But uh, my, one of my favorite parts that really, really popped out on me was uh, the machinist uh, name. Um, what is it? J. Arnor. Theodore Swanson. Oh yeah, right? I knew you'd like that part. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. he he uh, he definitely wanted. That's on page thirty. He definitely wanted to help out a bit, right? <laughs> uh, tell tell readers a little bit about about him. Yeah, so this is in the chapter that's called "Seeing the Martins," and one thing is for just to preface it a little bit that that any kind of missing persons case, right? There are going to be all kinds of clairvoyance and psychics and all these people coming forward. Well, this case was like through the roof in terms of the number of people who came forward like that. So this guy Swanson was one of a number of people like this but he had this kind of crazy contraption that he had just um developed that helped him to basically say um, very conclusively what did he say that the location noted notated noted on an attached and carefully plotted map was quote near the center of section 16 of township 3 south range 5 east in clackamas county possibly over a bank or cliff at this locale on little eagle creek near honor road i mean almost like so decisive it was like wanted to call you up and say like hey we should go out there with shovels and dig around or something i don't know but it but it was very very conclusive and then it gets into how he um how he figured this out that he took like this flashlight took the batteries out filled it up with um pictures and stories of the martins and used it as a kind of like divining rod to try to um, lead on the map and then it went crazy and then the report goes on to talk about how he and his partner had uh, equipment of a quote more secret nature that they were willing to loan to police and he didn't want any reward or publicity because he basically said he doesn't want to be bumped off for knowing too much. So obviously the Swanson dude was a pretty intense guy, but just the, the sort of details about things like this contraption. It's just it's one of the things I love about this kind of crime history is you just get these crazy stories. You know? And and I love it because, as you point out, uh, he, he kind of wrote some of the directions to the police officers in, in almost kind of like a poetic style. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. almost like a stanza that he you wrote. Do you want me to there. read that? Sure, sure. They were not abducted. It was not murder. It was not suicide and murder. It was just an accident. Car did not burn up. Accident happened after 4 p.m. December 7th. South Bank of Little Eagle Creek. Died in this order. Youngest girl, next to youngest girl, Mr. Martin, and eldest girl, all on December 7th. Mrs. Martin died on December 8th. And it, it's like, you know, like Doug was saying, separate 
little stand, little lines for each part of it. And then the reporting officer, Officer Hamilton, uh, wrote the note in there, and I'm going to quote here, from all appearances, this is an effort of sincerity on the part of the informant to assist in the locating of the missing family. So yeah, 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 they yeah. kind of thought he was a little bit of a nut job, but they're like, this, this dude is really sincere. Yeah, right? like, he isn't him. trying to be a screwball here. Yeah, yeah get very almost scientific about it. And yeah, and there, and there are a lot of those kinds of weird, um, yeah, what, what, um, um, Graven referred to what does he call them? Um, he calls them mental telepathy deals, which is <laughs> kind of a fun. I mean, he he has a great one of his own that he talks about, um, and I quoted it in his actual directly from his police report about um, a water witcher from Seattle who came to the Martin house and tried to divine the family using the fam- each of the family's socks, one of the socks from each family member, and that's a pretty memorable account in itself. So there's a, there's some really colorful ones there, and there are even a couple. I have some notes in this book, and there are even a couple that overlap to where it's sort of like what the fuck is going on two different people from two very different places were both saying that several of them ended up in Biggs Junction just east of all this this area and it's sort of like what especially you know when I go out to the the gorge now and it's kind of been this way all, all, all along I see all the beautiful scenery but I'm also like driving along thinking like oh that's where that is that's that's where the gun was found. That's way I should go out by Biggs Junction and dig around. You know, so I'm down. It's yeah, hot out there. Yeah, we gotta we gotta bring plenty of water. Yeah, yeah. So again, we talked about how it seems like you know, kind of maybe every decade this this case gets really examined. Well, what's what's gonna what's somebody gonna take from your research? You know, in 2029, what's yeah. what's yeah, what's gonna come out there? What what is not in your narrative? Huh. That the next investigator, let's not call him a historian, the next journalist, whomever, that gets into this case, what's mm. what's the stones that they still need to unturn again without revealing too sure, much to sure. the reader? Yeah. So one of the pieces is that this is still an inactive cold case, which means that at any time it could be reopened. Right. And so there are a couple of variables there. And one of them is just the fact that there are a number of sheriffs in different counties, especially in southwest Washington, for some reason that are still really paying attention to this case. So I guess one of the um, one of the variables here is the idea that some of that could be looked into in terms of both, you know, what they've found, what they are wanting to do with it, and um, whether or not that could actually be talked about now. Because I that was one aspect that I couldn't really delve into. Um, part of the, the fact of the matter is law enforcement isn't necessarily interested in sharing that kind of thing, rightfully so. Um, so, so that might be you know, one variable. Another one is the, the whole question of finding the vehicle, right? Because that's been done. It was done in the late 50s with, at that point, you know, sonar and various kinds of what would probably be considered pretty old school kinds of equipment. But it was pretty thorough in places like Cascade Locks. They really And fucking that. you. Yeah. You went out on a boat looking yeah. for it. I so mean, it was this, this wasn't just like yeah. digging through Graven's files, you know, and yeah. old newspaper clippings. I yeah, mean, I was out there with, uh, with, uh, former police officer who from the Dallas who'd been involved in this case and the grandson of Walter Graven. And we were out there with side scan sonar, which was pretty similar to what Margie Belay had used in the late nineties. But still, you know, this is a really tough area of the river. It's a small, relatively small area around the cliff site, you know, a few hundred yards, but we're talking depths of 160 feet in some places, major rock, you know, rocks that are the size of small houses and school buses all over the place, caves. Even I've been working with a wreck diver who's gone down there a couple of times and ended up in a couple of caves that are down there. So, so it's some heavy duty shit to look around in. And some people will even question whether the, the vehicle would even still be there. Um, some say it would at least be a fairly, you know, this was a solidly built vehicle and 60 years isn't that long. I mean, you know, relics from much earlier times. In fact, we, <laughs> my friend, um, the diver, Scott had actually gone down thinking he found some car parts down there and brought some things up. And it turned out it was actually some sort of 19th century wood and metal pieces which now that's a new mystery we're trying to figure is out what it, the, is it a prairie schooner yeah, that like didn't, didn't yeah. quite make it you know yeah, totally. before so, the barlow road yeah i we, my, my son and i even read a little bit from lewis and clark's journal to see if there was any mention of things falling off the uh, core of discovery you know we lost the uh, little thing off the side there but anyway um it, you know so so there's definitely that piece of it which is a question of mostly technology whether something in the next say 10 20 years could really put that to rest you know if we could see the bottom of the river the way we see anything else which could very well happen with a lot of tech you know lidar and other kinds of technology that could that could be a a, um, a major driving force and then there's the the factor which is that there there is this uh, there are people alive who seem to have been connected to the case and they're, they're older now and won't necessarily be around well they won't be around at that point but there might be a question of whether 
information comes out on that side. And that is something too, where, you know, sometimes people don't realize with uh, various kinds of census data, other kinds of information, there's a, there's a long kind of moratorium before access becomes available, 72 years, right? And so even the, the census data from 1960, which would be closest census to that, that might give some indication of certain people involved, where they're living, that sort of thing. That's not coming out for a number of years here. So there's that kind of thing too. Yeah, yeah, lots of, still some stones to be unturned, mm-hmm. but I think you did a fantastic job with the book and Thanks, just though. laying out this tragic case and uh, really, really just kind of one of those uh, original Oregon history true crime stories that people, you know, before a few years ago, I mean, I think I forwarded you an email because you've been working on this one for a long time. You know, somebody had sent me like a comic yeah. that they'd worked on on yeah, the Martin yeah. family. So, I mean, yeah. this is still a story that people are geeked out on. Well, and it's interesting because you have kind of two levels of that. You have like kind of old timers in Portland and there are quite a few. Le- I mean, it's not that long ago. And they're, you know, even at the reading the other night, at oh, yeah. Blooms, we had people from the neighborhood. There was a woman there who was a friend of Mrs. Martin, Barbara Martin, who you know went to social clubs and events with her. They're both real active in so so the people alive and they definitely res you know they connect with the stories a lot of them will say oh it must i think it was an accident that's what we always heard so might be interested in hearing more uh passing that along to their descendants but then also like you said there's this kind of geeked out like this is like i kind of want to i don't want to say it's like db cooper necessarily because there are a lot of differences but it's kind of db cooper level shit in the way that there are just a lot of weird places to look into this and that's one of my biggest hopes with readers is that not necessarily that they'll help to solve it although maybe they will but also that they'll kind of do their own version of what i did to just kind of get into it because there's just a lot to look into and a lot of that too is even stuff like oh that building i drive by all the time that was the car dealership where they traded in the jeep they won in a contest for the uh, station wagon that you know they disappeared in that's cool to know that's right over there on west burnside or you know the building over on, on northeast broadway where ken martin worked you know it's cool that that stuff's there and you can still kind of connect and i find i don't know i i i get a sense that a lot of people are interested in finding those kinds of connections to the past yeah in fact i think uh, this weekend i'm going to go to in front of the martin house i'm not going to give the address right yeah, here yeah yeah uh, but people can find it in the book obviously yeah, yeah. i think i'm going to go in front of the martin house and maybe get a little little creep on oh uh, yeah on. yeah well it's interesting i mean the, and the people who live there are cool one time one memorable event which i didn't write about because nothing much happened with it but it's definitely a memorable event was jeff gianola from coin tv and i went over there and he at that time i think he still might be doing some metal detection but he was really geeked out on metal detection he brought his son along and they both had their full metal detection kits shovels and you know headphones and everything they were all set and we were looking in the backyard try to figure out if there was anything you know hidden there and i think they found like a nickel or something well, anything else you want to tell the le- uh, the listeners as uh, we're wrapping this up? Listeners slash readers? Yeah, well, I appreciate people taking a look at it. And I think it's it's just one of those stories that ha- it has a lot of different elements, too, that, it, you know, I want to emphasize that, you know, it is a true crime story in a lot of ways, but it's also really a, a Columbia Gorge story. It's a uh, mid-20th century Portland story um, and a mid-20th century Oregon story. And there's a lot to kind of be gained from uh, these other aspects of it. And it's definitely a kick-ass story. Um, I got my copy at Powell's last week. Um, anywhere that you'd like people to go directly to, to pick up the book? Yeah, Powell's is great. Annie Bloom's, Broadway Books. Broadway Books is always a, a good one because it's right down the road from, from their neighborhood. Um, but at, or even directly to the publisher or through me. And we'll make sure that we have a link on the on the episode page on the website, orhistory.com, so people can purchase it. And uh, when's the next reading coming uh, up? Well, I have one down in McMinnville, Oregon, at Third Street Books on September 26th. 2019. 2019. At, um, I think it's, that one's at 6.30 p.m. That's a Thursday evening. And then after that, um, I'm hope, hoping to be at Holiday Cheer over at Oregon Historical Society. That's December 8th, I believe. 2019. 2019 at, at I think, something like 2 p.m. usually when those happen. And that's a, it's not a reading, but it's sitting down at a table with my books and happy to talk to people about it. You know, folks usually like to come around and chat. So that's one. Um, I'm not sure if it will happen, but I'm kind of, I'm trying to look into Powell's uh, for maybe something in December or even January. One of the things about this book is I think it's a story that, 
it's kind of, it's not, I don't want to say it's a Christmas story, but it does have elements that kind of make it suitable for reading over those winter months. And so I think that might be appropriate to try to get a couple more readings in there. So I'll, I'll, so stay tuned. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll be there with some uh, candy canes, the sugar yeah. kind, not the wood kind. Yeah, there you go. Well, well, thanks a lot, JP. Really appreciate it. And again, Echo of Distant Water. People should definitely pick it up and get some more information on the Martin family. Thanks Thank so you. much, Doug. Really appreciate talking with you about it. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-ass Oregon history is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. Follow us on Instagram at Kickass Oregon History. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kickass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. Um, he's the person who ran it, had been connected to that big vice probe. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. ORHistory.com